Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Genesis 1:26 begins, Then God said, Let us create, manage our, in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all of the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was evening and morning the sixth day. So as we talk about the creation of man, uh, the truth about the origin of man is that he was created as he is now. Adam wasn't any different from you and me. In fact, you and I are not what he was. We are inferior. Don't take it personally. It's all the same because of the fall, because of sin. Now, we're going to find out, and we have four distinctives about the creation of man in this account. First, that the Lord himself created or prepared a place. Now, we've already been through the first five days of creation. The first five days were really outfitting the house in which man was to live. Man is king of the earth. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation, created in God's image. And all the rest of creation simply provided his house, preparation for man's arrival on the scene. And it's preparation of a domain that gives him glory and honor. Stars will fail, the sun will fail, the earth will fail, all of the universe will roll up like a scroll, the whole creation will melt with fervent heat, all living items, green thing, plant, tree, will be destroyed and will be recreated, but not man. Man is the pinnacle. As a matter of fact, God says that it was all good. Everything God made was good. No deformities, no mutations. No inferiorities, no natural selection, no survival of the fittest because there were no unfit animals. It was all good. There was no imperfections. If you notice in the text, this is very important. There is an intimate switch in the language. If you look at verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24, God is saying, let there be, let there be, let there be. But now... He says, let us create man in our image. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ created all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. Jesus created everything. Even the Spirit of God is talked about in Genesis 1. So you have an incredible revelation of the Trinity in this first chapter. Everything else was Let there be, let there be, let there be. But now God says, let us create man in our image. And so the Trinitarian truth is found. Now, of course, there are numerous references in the Old Testament to the Trinity, right? We know about that. But 
it's fully revealed in the New Testament. That fact that God is eternal three in one is revealed more fully in the New Testament. God determined at some point that not only would he create, but he would also create man. He would also create a chosen race that would be given to his son. This was in all of creation order. This was all part of God's eternal decree. So he prepares not only the earth as a place for man, but he prepares man and the redeemed race as a gift to his son. The fact that the Psalms talk about the son. The Lord said to my Lord. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in his wrath. All of these refer to the triune God with a very intimate creation of man. Yes, we are formed out of the common elements of the earth, the same elements that all of creation is comprised of. But in none of these did God take the personal aspect of the Trinity being involved and bending down and forming man, having, it, having the first surgery presented and performed upon Adam to create Eve. And if you look at it, not only is the Trinity involved, but the first two chapters of Genesis, most of it is focused on the creation of man. As a matter of fact, Genesis 1 gives an overview, and then Genesis 2 expands that. And it's a beautiful depiction of how God has men and women at the center of his creation. This really flies in the face of so much secular thinking. And so much of the dystopic views that you hear about where man is actually an enemy of nature and should be eradicated. Of course, I always suggest, well, you first. You know, when people make that suggestion, go right ahead. We are made in the image of God. <clears throat> made in the image of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones delivered an interview in 1970, and he said, I criticize the modern view of man on two grounds. One is that it makes too much of man, and man is exalted above God. And the second one is that it makes too little of man. So it makes too much of man, it makes too little of man because it exalts man above God, replacing God, and also it doesn't understand the sinfulness of man. Now, while the image of God it's extremely important, and it's a great theological subject in its own right. It contains one inherent truth that's critically important, and that is morality. On your, on your handout, you have this statement from uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. An element in being created in the image of God is morality. Morality includes two further elements of freedom and responsibility. To be sure, the freedom which men and women possess is not absolute. Even in the beginning, the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, were not autonomous. They were creatures and were responsible for acknowledging their status by their obedience. Realizing that we are created in God's image brings with it not only a sense of honor, but also the responsibility and the realization of grave accountability. Our inherent morality doesn't vouch for our morals. Rather, it convicts us of our failures 
to behave morally. Well, let's turn from the sacred text and look at what God has made and the wonder of creation. Specifically, I'd like to point out just a few things. And the first thing is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm going to ask the folks in the sound booth to go ahead and play this video about eyes. The human eye is a marvel of design, much like a video camera, but far more advanced and versatile. Like some cameras, the eye is auto-focusing. To do this, man-made cameras have to move the whole lens, but our eye changes the shape of its lens. Like a camera, the eye bends incoming light and creates an image inside the eye. But unlike cameras, the eye also sharpens the image along the edges. Similar to some cameras, the eye automatically adjusts to brightness, so we can see day or night. In fact, in dark conditions, the eye increases its sensitivity to light up to 100,000 times. Eyes are much more sophisticated than cameras. They convert the light image into electrochemical signals, which are sent immediately to a brain that processes the images and makes necessary adjustments. Many other aspects of the eye surpass anything humans can design. Eyes are self-cleaning, self-lubricating, and self-repairing. Even more marvelous, eyes are built automatically in the womb. No camera can repair or build itself. Evidence of design appears in all types of animals. Each eye seems specially designed for its environment, whether an eagle in flight or a fish in the sea. For example, Owls have a special surface in the back of their eye which reflects light back through the retina. It helps them to see better in the dark. Flies have another design, a compound eye, which helps them to detect the slightest motion. Such diverse yet exquisitely designed eyes show the handiwork of our Lord. brain consists of approximately 12 billion cells forming 12, 120 trillion interconnections. The light-sensitive retina of the eye, which is really part of the brain, uh, contains over 10 million photoreceptor cells. These cells capture the light pattern formed by the lens and convert it into complex electrical signals which are then sent to a special area of the brain where they are transformed into the sensation we call vision. In an article in Byte magazine in April of 1985, John Stevens compares the signaling processing capability of the cells in the retina with that of the most sophisticated computer known to man, the Cray supercomputer. With today's digital hardware being extremely impressive, it is clear that the human retina real-time performance goes unchallenged. Actually, to stimulate 10 milliseconds, one one-hundredth of a second, of the complete processing of even a single nerve cell from the retina would require the solution of about 500 simultaneous nonlinear differential equations, 
a hundred times and would take at least several minutes of processing time in a Cray supercomputer. Keeping in mind that there are 10 million or more such cells interacting each other in complex ways, it would take a minimum of 100 years of Cray supercomputer time to simulate what takes place in your eye many times every second. Darwin would even confess to this. On your handout, you have a quote from Charles Darwin, and he said this, to propose that the eye, with all of its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus in different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. If a supercomputer is a product of intelligent design, how much more obviously is the eye a product of intelligent design? And yet, evolutionists are dead certain that the eye and everything else in nature can, came into being by pure chance and the intrinsic properties of nature. Evolutionists occasionally admit that it's difficult even for them to believe such a thing. A famous evolutionist Ernst Mayer in Systemics, uh, Systematics in the Origin of Species says this, it is a considerable strain on one's credulity to assume that finely balanced systems such as certain sense organs, the eye of vertebrates, or the bird's feather could be improved by random mutations. Evolutionists rarely attempt to calculate the probability of chance occurrence in their imagined evolutionary scenarios. While there's no way to measure the probability of chance occurrence of something as complex as the eye, there are ways to calculate the probability of chance occurrence of individual protein molecules, which are essential to life. Over 100,000 different kinds of proteins have been identified in the human body alone, and each has a specific unique chemical composition necessary for their function. Proteins are polymers, chemical composition depending upon the arrangement of many small units called amino acids. There are 20 kinds of amino acids that are used to construct the proteins of all living organisms, including man. These amino acids are linked together end to end like a string of beads. And let's think about it. The average protein consists of a string of 500 amino acids. The total number of combinations of 20 amino acids in such a string is for all practical purposes unlimited. Imagine if we, you could, we were trying to spell out the 27 letters and spaces in the phrase, the theory of evolution, including spaces, that would be 27. <clears throat> now you've taken your Scrabble bag that your children regularly beat you on in playing Scrabble, and you reach into the Scrabble bag and you pull out the letters and spaces for the theory of evolution. The probability of getting any particular letter or space in that phrase using that method would be one chance out of 27. One out of 27 or one over 27. But if you were to try to calculate the odds of getting all of those letters and spaces in the right order, you would have to multiply 1 over 27 times 1 over 27 times 1 over 27 for a total of 23 times, 27 if you include the spaces. That calculation reveals that you could expect to succeed in correctly spelling 
the theory of evolution, by chance, once in 800 trillion trillion draws. I'm sorry, once in 800 million trillion trillion draws. If you were to hurry the process along and draw your letters out at the rate of a billion per second, you could expect to spell out that simple little phrase in 26,000 trillion years. That's 26 quadrillion years. Now, please, do not tell anybody in the federal government who is responsible for spending that quadrillion comes after trillion. Please do not do that. We have enough problems. The 500 amino acids that make up the average size protein can be arranged in over 1 times 10 to the 600 different ways. That's a 1 with 600 zeros after it. The number is vastly larger than the total number of atomic particles that could be packed into the known universe. If we had a computer that could arrange the 500 amino acids of a particular protein at a rate of a billion combinations in a second, we could stand essentially no chance of hitting the correct combination during the 14 billion years evolutionists claim for the age of the universe. Even if our high-speed computer was reduced to the size of an electron and we had enough of them to fill a room measuring about 10 billion cubic light years, which is 1 times 10 to the 150 computers, they would still be exceedingly unlikely to hit the right combination. Such a room full of computers could only rearrange about 1 times 10 to the 180 combinations in 300 billion years. In fact, of all the proteins that ever existed on Earth, we're all different. Our room full of computers could be exceedingly unlikely to chance upon the combination of any one of them in that 300 billion years. Well, evolutionists counter when they're hit with that sort of probability that the argument is irrelevant since evolution is utterly purposeless and thus never tries to make anything in particular. They insist that natural selection makes the impossible possible. But evolutionists are continually challenged by math. Yes, math is hard. We get that. Here's a great quote from a professor of engineering at MIT. And I believe you have this on your handout. The chance emergence of man is like the probability of typing at random a meaningful library of 1,000 volumes using the following procedure. Begin with a meaningful phrase, retype it with a few mistakes, make it longer by adding letters, and then examine to see if the result is the new phrase has any meaning. Repeat this process until the library is complete. <clears throat> one, one illustration that I like to use is this. The probability of this sort of thing happening would be as if you took quarters and you had an area the size of Texas and you filled up this area the size of Texas to a height of three foot with these quarters, neatly stacked. Then you were flying in a plane and you threw out one red quarter into this sea of quarters. And then having someone find that one red quarter. <clears throat> Let's move on. Let's talk about the evolution of man. And there's a challenge. There's a challenge in evolutionary thinking. And that challenge is the challenge of 
homology, homology. Homo means same. Logi or logos is study of, right? So it's a study of sameness. Evolutionists presume that similarity among organisms suggests a genetic relationship. In defending evolutionary interpretation of homologies, T. Barra wrote, if you compare a 1953 and a 1954 Corvette side by side, and then a 1954 Corvette with a 1955 model, and so on, the descent with modification is overwhelmingly obvious. So you look at the 53 Corvette, and you look at the 54 Corvette. They're pretty much the same, right? Then you look at the 54 Corvette and the 55 Corvette. My favorite is the 1963 split-window Corvette. I don't know about you guys. And I really like the latest uh, versions of the Corvette. I think they're really slick, even though some people say that it's a European design that they don't like. Whatever. But the problem with that illustration provided by evolutionists is what? What's the problem with comparing the random chance evolution of man with the differences between the 53-54, the 54-55 Corvettes. You're talking about homologous structures or items that are in one car to the other car, right? <clears throat> What's the problem with that? The problem is that there was intelligent design. There are engineers that took the schematics, the drawings of the 53 Corvette and said, oh, we're going to tweak this, we're going to make it to the 54 Corvette you lose that relationship as being analogous to evolution. Similarity is not automatically evidence for genetic relationship. Comparative anatomists do not agree. The evolutionists believe that the hind limbs evolved from pelvic fins of a fish and forelimbs from pectoral fins of a fish. And we've looked at the picture. You remember the picture of Haeckel, the one who made the drawings that everybody said ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. The development of a vertebrae will show its evolutionary past. Remember that? And how it was a fraud? The egg cell, the blastula and the gastrula, stages in the different vertebrae classes are so dissimilar that if it were not for the close relationship and the basic body plan of all adult vertebrates, it's unlikely that they would have been classed as belonging to the same phylum. There is no question that because of the great dissimilarity of the early stages of embryogenesis in the different vertebrate classes, organs and structures considered homologous in adult vertebrates cannot be traced back to homologous cells or regions in the early stage of development. In other words, similar structures are arrived at by different routes. Bottom line, they don't prove common descent. That's an assumption. A common designer fits the evidence just as well, if not better. Well, let's go to something that we are more familiar with, shall we? Transitional forms, the different transitional forms. No part of the evolutionary lie is more loudly proclaimed and widely believed than the evolution of man. In fact, when most people think about evolution, they think about man. And so you see a picture here from National Geographic where the ascent of man is supposedly illustrated. The picture on the far left uh, is actually twice as large as the skeletal frame of the gibbon monkey, uh, ape, I should say, that uh, was supposed to be the progenitor of man. 
that was published in the mid-19th century. And supposedly, they say, there's, evolution, uh, there's evolutionary evidence for this. But the problem is, the fossil evidence is not there. Every once in a while, someone finds a bone somewhere, and out of that bone, they tell us they have identified the missing links of that sequence. So here you have a given monkey all the way developing into modern space-age man. Well, the fact of the matter is there isn't any evolutionary link that we've found the transitionary forms. In fact, most all of the fossils have been used in hoaxes. The presumption is that evolution is true. They're trying to make the bones fit the drawings in National Geographic. In a book written by John Ackerberg and John Weldon called Darwin's Leap of Faith, it says, despite widespread belief to the contrary, the fossil evidence of mankind is woefully inadequate to justify any belief in evolution. Despite 130 years of searching, there are no fossils that have convincingly related man to other species. Most have conclusively proven false. Even if you take this picture of a gibbon monkey eventually uh, evolving into the uh, corpulent gentleman with the big gulp. As I said, there are many outright hoaxes. Anthropologist Kathleen Reich, editor of Hominid Origins, cited many authorities who disagree about the interpretations of these many alleged human ancestry discoveries. And she said, until accurate dating of fossils is possible, Reconstruction of hominoid relationships must remain tenuous at best. So she is an honest anthropologist. Dwayne Gish wrote, There is no evidence, either in the present world or in the world of the past, that man has arisen from some lower creature. He stands alone as a separate and distinct created type or basic morphology design endowed with qualities that set him far above other living creatures. Now, you've all heard of different uh, categories like Ramapithecus, Australopithecus, uh, Pithcanthropus. These have all been Latin terms given to supposed fossils and have been heralded as transitional forms between ape and man. Now, some of these forms you've heard about, and we're going to briefly describe them. Uh, this little graph that you have on your paper is very helpful because it's a quick summary. Homo sapiens neanderthalus, Neanderthal man. 150 years ago, Neanderthal reconstructions were stooped and understood to be very much like an ape man. It's now admitted that the supposed stooped structure was due to arthritis. And Neanderthal is just a variation of humans. Ramapithecus is another one. So you have the Neanderthal man and Ramapithecus. The average person on the street probably believes these classifications re uh, represent genuine intermediate forms, but they don't. Ramapithecus is a category in which all sorts of bones have been thrown into that category. Ramapithecus, once widely regarded as an ancestor of humans, has now been realized to be an extinct type of orangutan, an ape. Euanthropus, or pit-down man. Pit-down man is a hoax created on a human skull and orangutan's jaw. It was widely publicized as a missing link for 40 years. Pit-down man is one of the most famous frauds in the history of science, and for 40 years, the fraud went undiscovered. Pit-down man was named Euranthropus Dawsoni after Charles Dawson. We've already uh, referred to him before. And it was constructed from a modern-looking skull and an ape-like lower jaw. 
but they did age testing on it, and guess what happened? They discovered that the skull fragments were many thousands of years older than the jaw. They could not have been from the same individual unless, as one scientist put it, the man died, but his jaw lingered on for a few thousand years. Well, why does this continue to be published? Why do we still have this in our scientific journals, in our school books, our textbooks? There's a wishful thinking and a cultural bias on the part of evolutionists. Nebraska Man. Nebraska Man is another one. Nebraska Man was based on a single tooth of a type of pig. And they made wonderful drawings of Nebraska Man and Mrs. Nebraska Man, <clears throat> all based on this one tooth. It was a fraud. Imagine, imaginative drawings did not verify any archaeological finds. Java Man. Pithancap, uh, I'm sorry. Pithcanthropus. Java Man is now renamed to Homo erectus. Pithcanthropus, you might know as Java Man, the creation of some sort of traditional form out of some minute skeletal fragment. That skeletal fragment is now known to have come from a creature related to the gibbons. The gibbon monkey, not the gibbons that live down the street. Right? Australopithecus. What's the most famous Australopithecus? Named after a song by the Beatles, because that song from the Beatles was playing when the anthropologist discovered the bones. What's the name of the creature? The song was playing was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And the Australopithecus name was Lucy. All right? There are various species that at times have been proclaimed as human ancestors, popularly known as Lucy, Australopithecus afarinaeus, had been subject to detailed studies of the inner ear, skulls, and bones, and suggested that Lucy and her like are not on the way of becoming human. They have walked more upright than most apes, but not in a human manner. It's very similar to the pygmy uh, chimpanzee. And then there's Australopithecus africanus, which at one time was promoted to be a missing link. It's no longer considered to be in the line from apes to humans because it's extremely ape-like. They've said that Australopithecus was evidence of human evolution. But the view that these fossils represent genuine intermediates has been challenged by famous British anatomists. Solly Lord Zuckerman and Dr. Charles Oxnard have studied as a research team for over 15 years. And Zuckerman says this, I myself remain totally unpersuaded. Almost always when I've tried to check the anatomical claims on which the status of Australopithecus is based, I have ended up in failure. Again, Peking man, once presented as an ape man, but now reclassified as Homo erectus. Homo habilis, there's a growing consensus among other paleoanthropologists that this category actually consists of bones and pieces from various other types. And it's been invalidated as a taxon, a category. It no longer exists as a category, but you'll see this term continue to be used in scientific literature, textbooks, and within evolutionary thought. Homo erectus. 
Homo erectus is also a problem because the bones of the supposed ancestor to man have been found with the bones of apes, gorillas, and humans. And as sometimes happens, these bones get conflated. They get put together. Now, it's a simple question. Because man did not evolve, what's our conclusion? What's our conclusion? Well, the conclusion is that there is no fossil evidence that man is the product of evolution. The missing links are still missing because they simply do not exist. The Bible clearly states, then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, here's the simple understanding. Because man did not evolve, it is impossible to prove he did. You're not going to find transitionary forms that don't exist. Here are some leading evolutionist quotes. Robert Martin. So one is forced to conclude there is no clear-cut scientific picture of human evolution, period. Dr. Maeve Leakey, in a very famous uh, quote, said this. It may never be possible to say exactly what evolved into what. How would you like to spend your whole life researching something and come to that conclusion? Richard Leakey made this quote. I think we're still doing a great deal of guessing. David Philbeam made this quote. There is no clear-cut and inexorable pathway from ape to human being. As to whether a man evolved from chimps, orangutans, or gibbons, he said, the fossil record has been elastic enough and the expectation sufficiently robust to accommodate almost any story. Another leaky, Mary Leakey, a well-known anthropologist, commenting as to the effort that she'd made all her life long to construct an evolutionary family three tree says this, I do not believe it's possible to fit the known hominid fossils into a reliable pattern. Well, the oldest human fragment that we have is a fragment called KP-271. It has been dated at 4.5 billion years. 4.5 billion years. That is older than all of these ancestral prototypes, progenitors that we've just discussed. So it seems like man has been around before of all of his supposed progenitors. Perhaps you'll remember from your studies, your science textbooks, this picture of vestigial organs includes a wisdom tooth, which I just read today is dis described as a vestigial organ. Blind evolutionary bias is responsible for the fallacy of using vestigial organ evidence for evolution, concluding that an organ with no apparent purpose was evidence of previous ancestral history. Evolutionists have paraded such examples in classrooms as proof of evolution. Now you have a series of quotes on your paper. Look at this one quote, 1990. There are, according to Wettersheim, no less than 180 vestigial structures in the human body sufficient to make of a man a veritable walking museum of antiquities. That's 1990. Look at the next quote, which is actually from 1946. 
many of the so-called vestigial organs are now known to fulfill important functions. There's a problem there. It was 34 years ago that we said, hey, we're just learning what some of these organs do. The appendix, the evolutionary myth about the appendix, the veriform appendage in which some recent medical writers have vainly endeavored to find a utility is the shrunken remainder of a large and normal intestine of a remote ancestor. The interpretation, listen, listen, this is a very important statement here. The interpretation of it would stand even if it were found to have a certain use in the human body. Vestigial organs are sometimes pressed into a secondary use when their original function has been lost. So even if we find that that organ that we think is a remnant of our evolutionary past, even if we find that it does have a function today, we're still going to say it's a vestige of the past. They're sometimes pressing to a secondary use when the original function has been lost. It's like, okay, so maybe there's another function of it. You know, Scoffers mock when they hear of individuals who fill in their lack of knowledge with God, as if God is behind this mystery, but they do it themselves. Well, we don't know what it does, but it most certainly be proof of evolution. Don't tell me otherwise, and I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears and go, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. It's just not going to happen. I'm not listening to that. That, from Joe McCabe, was 1912. But in 1981... Anatomically, the appendix shows evidence of a lymphoid function. There is experimental evidence as well that the ver ver vermiform appendix is a lymphoid organ which acts as a reservoir of antibody-producing cells. So I guess there may be a function of this so-called remnant of our past. So as we wrap up, we have to ask, how do we respond? Number one, as we pointed out in our original class, the Bible and Christ, its author, consistently taught one creation story. Adam and Eve, Abel, Noah, the flood, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses and the manna from heaven, Lot and his wife, Sodom and Gomorrah. Number two, faith is not the result of winning an argument. We need to believe what God says when he declares, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And people hold to these ideas because God has not liberated their mind to avoid the wisdom of the age. We need to pay close attention to what God says the fool has done. Atheistic scientists will unsurprisingly, say the exact opposite of what God says. We also need to realize that if we witness to an evolutionist, if we witness to a scientist, we need to first love the individual. They know a lot of things. They could probably bury you and me with some of their facts and some of their research. We need to be loved and be faithful to proclaim the gospel. We also need in our understanding that faith is not winning an argument, to pray for the individual. There are two simple responses to science-based atheism. First, 
we cannot know from science if science itself is the best source of knowledge. We cannot know from science if science itself is the best source of knowledge. The only way to definitely prove that science explains everything would be to have exhaustive knowledge of all reality and then be able to explain using only scientific data what all reality is and what it means. I am not the source of all truth. If I tell you I'm the source of all truth, you should be suspect. Believe the science is not an adequate answer. Secondarily, scientific consensus can and frequently does change. Scientific consensus can and frequently does change. Well, that limits its epistemologic authority. It limits the authority it has of proclaiming truth. The progressive nature of science requires and is essential to its value. Done rightly, science can correct its own errors. Number four, godly scientists exist. Newton, Pasteur, Kepler, Descartes, and other confirm that every major branch of modern science was founded by Bible-believing Christians. You could cite Linus Pauling as a reference since Pauling's history of silence acknowledges that. He could have corresponded by observing that Cotton Mather, the much maligned Puritan pastor in colonial New England, died from his participation in a smallpox vaccine which was experimental. Mather, Cotton Mather, was a member of the Fellowship of the Royal Society for Improving Natural Knowledge, a group of scientists at that time. Today it's known as the United Kingdom's Academy of Sciences. Is it true that only the uneducated reject evolution? Well, first off, making such a statement is an example of extreme arrogance and pride. That argument has no footing and should be cast off. Matter of fact, if you follow that ideology, everything Isaac Newton believed in taught should be shredded because he was, to today's standards, uneducated. Darwin also had a lack of formal education. He had a bachelor's degree in theology. Let those of you who are studying theology remember that and not be proud because pride comes before a fall. Well, in 2014, the Pew Research Center released data indicating that vast millions of Americans still reject evolution. 60% of Republicans, 33% of Democrats. Among evangelical Christians, 64% indicated rejection of evolution as an explanation for human origins. Piper makes this statement. Evolution as it ordinarily means in our culture, namely naturalistic evolution, evolution minus God, evolution as an explanation of the origin of life when God is not there to explain it, is incompatible with creation, incompatible with God, incompatible with Christianity. 
Now, you and I can fully understand and appreciate if someone is not a Christian, is ungodly, and they accept what they've been spoon-fed about evolution. Totally understandable. The natural man receives not the things of the spirit, and he cannot because they are spiritually discerned. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we understand that natural man will think as a natural man. To expect otherwise is surprising. The biggest issue is when you have people who claim the name of Christ, who believe that God's word is authoritative, accurate, true, and reliable. When people like that blindly accept evolutionary dogma which flies in the face of God's revelation, that's a greater difficulty. And that's why we've had this class. We've had this class because there were people that were in the lobby of Faith Bible Church, and someone said, hey, I just ran into someone who believes in a young earth. And the two people that were listening to this individual said, oh, well, I believe in a young earth. And the other person said, well, we teach a young earth here at Faith Bible Church. And so we had this class because we all come to faith with baggage, with thoughts that are not shaped by the Word of God. And by the renewing of our minds, God will reframe those things. And by His grace, we understand that everything has come into being because of the Word of God by His power. And it gives Him glory. And we need to, when we get together with friends, relatives, who may have blindly accepted these things, to love them into the kingdom, to use some of the things that we've talked about. There's a whole bunch of things we've talked about. <laughs> but if you only have one or two things that you can use in your conversation with the unsaved, and even with the saved, to cause them to think about these things and to recognize God's power, His might, His glory, His, His design, then you'll be a faithful witness. No. Any questions? Uh, thank you, brother. I'm looking forward to the rest. It's taken about 20 hours each week <laughs> to put this together. And you all have been very patient. Any other questions, comments? Yes, John. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, Josh Miller just asked, why, uh, why this divergence from Darwin? Why did he go in this direction after having uh, received a uh, bachelor's degree in theology? Spirit of the age, the, this concept of 
a contra contrary uh, thought pattern, a contrary worldview to that of the scriptures was happening. At that same time, higher criticism, literary criticism was coming up, and so belief in the erosion of the word, uh, belief in the validity and truthfulness of God's word was being eroded. So he was, uh, he was being affected by that. That uh, critical, theory, critical, uh, critical uh, literary criticism was coming out of Germany and affected, affected all of the churches in Europe and in North America. And I'd say that that was probably the key thing there. Any other questions? All right, let's pray and we get ready to be with God's people and worship together our risen Lord. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses of your grace, your power, and how intimately you have indeed made us. Lord, we pray that as we are gathered together with our friends, relatives, those who don't know you, and maybe even, Lord, those who know you but have not yet become convinced of the truth of your word, Lord, that you would use us in a powerful and mighty way, that we would be kind and patient, that we would not be arrogant, but instead we would reflect your grace to us. We thank you for this time. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth as we gather with your people now. We praise you in your son's name.